to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this extended COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zoom casting with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston, kicking off what is our first ever Shelter and Solidarity special edition. We're here with you on a Wednesday night. We will still be having our normal show on Thursday night tomorrow at 7 p.m., but here, due to emergency circumstances and a, and a, and a viable teaching moment, an opportunity we have here, we are joined by some terrific guests and a guest host who will be leading us into today's topic, Stepping Up for Texas, focusing on mutual aid, solidarity, and making sense of this ongoing crisis afflicting the people in and around Texas, which I'm sure many of you have been hearing about the weather storms, the power outages, the outrageous bills. What does it all mean? How has it come to this? And what are the lessons to be learned and the opportunities that are opening up before us? Leading us into this vital discussion will be David Cobb, David Cobb, who is a longtime, a, I guess a, I understand, a, um, originally from Texas, although now in the California area, area uh, active with the uh, Solidarity Economy Network, the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, as well as a fellow with the Liberty Tree Foundation for the Democratic Revolution, uh, a, a revolution whose time, no doubt, has come. David, welcome to Shelter and Solidarity. Well, thank you, Joe, and thank you for the great privilege of being allowed to, to guest host uh, what is your normal program. So I feel honored to do that. I also want to say, like, straight up, y'all, I always identify myself uh, as a revolutionary. Uh, I'm a nonviolent revolutionary, which is to say I eschew violence as an affirmative political tool, right? But I am a revolutionary because I believe we have to completely restructure this society. This society is fundamentally racist. It's fundamentally classist. It is fundamentally class oppressive. Uh, and as if that's not bad enough, and we can all agree that's bad, right? As if that's not bad enough, the huge transnational corporations that are have basically hijacked economics are literally going to destroy this planet if we do not interrupt them and recreate society. So in that capacity as a lawyer, I've sued corporate polluters, I've lobbied elected officials, I've run for office myself, I ran for attorney general of the great state of Texas, pledging to use that office to revoke the charters of corporations routinely violating health, safety, public interest, uh, and environmental and worker protection laws. I ran for president of the United States on the Green Party ticket, and I've been arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience. So I, like for real y'all, all the tools, all the tactics, all the strategies. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna go one by one and introduce uh, our, uh, our, our panelists, if you will, but really our comrades, the people on the ground doing the work. Uh, I'll, and as a way of introduction, I'm gonna introduce each of you and then just ask you each, say a word about yourself and your work and also how are you doing through this crisis moment uh, and sort of what your experience was. Then we'll get into the deeper conversation. So I'm going to start with Zach, who is with Corpus Christi DSA. Zach, how are you at the moment? What happened to you? Hello, everybody, and thank you for having me. Um, I can say that I'm doing well, but it's definitely a struggle. Ever since the storm hit, our mutual aid working group here in Corpus Christi has been working round the clock to provide support for people. And while the work is worth it, it is tiring. Um, but now that the storm has passed, everything is better. Um, now that relief is getting out to people, we're all heartened by everything. 
um, and we're finding unique opportunities because of this uh, to uh, build a base and, and build solidarity here in South Texas. Thank you, Zach, and welcome. And let's turn now to Mark from I Love Third World. Mark. Hey, I love Third Ward here. Mark, I'm actually in Third Ward right now. Um, so basically, the it gave me a chance to kind of like really see what's going on. Like one thing with the pandemic and every kind of catastrophe that's come through Houston, it just kind of exposed like how the elites have just kind of like, you know, they have all this power, but they don't do anything to help people with it. Like for us, it was like the energy grid and ERCOT and how we pronounce that. And um, how, like, I didn't know anything about that grid structure and who owned it, that it was privately owned. I just know that all the electricity was off, like for so many, so many Houstonians and a lot of families were freezing and that should not happen in a modern, like United States at all. So it just kind of like showed me the corruption that just kind of the greed and corruption, it's just kind of plagued this society. Thank you, Mark. And for the non-Texans in the crowd, and again, as a native Houstonian myself, I got to say, Third World, Third Ward is the heart uh, of Houston, Texas, home of George Foreman, uh, to date myself, uh, but also, uh, you know, the, the predominantly Black and low-income uh, area. Uh, these folks have been knowing how to survive uh, in crisis condition uh, for a long time, and we've got a lot to learn from the Third World. Uh, let's turn now to Bill, and speaking of, Mark, that grid system, let's turn to Bill Maydai. Uh, Bill is an attorney uh, based out of Austin. Bill. Hi there. Thanks, David. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Bill Maydai. I'm uh, a lifelong Texan. I've lived in Austin for many decades. I am not uh, representing any organization. I'm an attorney here. I specialize in energy and finance. And, uh, yes, the grid is painfully complex and confusing. And I'm hoping can maybe able to answer some questions about that and understand the various aspects of it to help the conversation move forward. For myself, I'll just say I got very lucky. I, uh, I was one of the relatively few people who never lost power throughout the entire crisis. And so it, you can kind of see the unbalance where some of us had power and water the whole time and others lost it for a week. But I'm very happy to be here and hope I can contribute. Thanks. And let's welcome Alice Liu of the West End Recovery. Hi everyone, my name is Alice. My pronouns are she, her. I currently work with West Street Recovery. Uh, we're doing rapid response and um, pipe repairs and mucking in Houston right now. Um, I grew up in Dallas and I came to Houston for college. My sophomore year, Hurricane Harvey hit um, and that actually changed the course of my career. Um, and since then, it's, it's really just been progressing deeper and deeper into how, how mired Houston is in this, in this petrochemical society. Um, we're really on both ends of it uh, in terms of being so car-centric and also being the, the national, international hub of oil and gas. Um, but I also was lucky enough not to lose power, but having grown up in Texas, you know, I was texting all of my friends in Dallas and in Houston, and honestly, out of my network, like two to three people still had power, 
during those uh, two to three days of outages. Um, so it really touched almost everyone in my life. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for your kind uh, and gentle correction of me. And thank you to Rachel. Uh, it is West Street Recovery, uh, proving that we are all better than the mistakes that we make uh, and that we're all better together. So that's the first of the mistakes that I'll make today. I know that there will be many others. And if you are loving and patient with me as I make my mistakes and we all do it together, we'll get to the world that we want to live in. Alice, thank you so much uh, for being here. Let's turn now to Christian of Sunrise and Latinx Dallas. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. My name is Christian, uh, he, him pronouns. Um, like David said, I organized with Sunrise and Latinx Dallas. Uh, last week, I lost power for three days. Uh, it would come on randomly. Uh, first two days, we only got power for six hours. Um, it was pretty cold in the house, but for the most part, we were okay. Um, and I, I felt better because we had been, we had already been working with community organizations, providing food distributions, basic necessities to people here in Oak Cliff and around Dallas. Um, when this, when this uh, winter storm came, all these groups jumped on board and started doing the same thing, just at a higher scale. We had tons more volunteers, over a hundred people would come and help us out. Um, and it was amazing to see, but it was also very disheartening because we should not have had to do that. Our government should have, and honestly, they never came. Uh, they didn't even plow the roads or salt the roads. Uh, so we were slipping and sliding, making deliveries seven minutes away, uh, just warm meals and groceries, everything that we had. But it gave me hope because we all were there together and we showed up every single day working hours and hours and tirelessly. Um, but for the most part, we've, we've been okay. We've still been doing uh, mutual aid efforts every single day ever since. And thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for being here. And Christian really set us up for uh, the conversation, right? Like what, what we saw was that uh, there was absolute misery uh, and we'll get into the context of exactly, oh, uh, Kira says, oh, Rain, Rain has joined us. This is fantastic news. Uh, Rain from uh, Louisiana Mutual Aid and Direct uh, Relief, welcome to the program. Uh, and what we're doing is go around of the speakers to ask, uh, how are you and what happened to you during the crisis moment? Hello, hi everyone, uh, this is Rain. Um, I'm with Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and we're a uh, decentralized network that's kind of all over. I'm based in Louisiana, um, in Baton Rouge, and uh, it's really great to be here with everybody. Um, what happened to me over the winter storm was that I lost power for some days and it was horrible because I'm from Florida and I was really cold. That's just like my personal issue. Um, but what we've been doing um, in response was uh, taking out um, just supplies. We went and raided as many heat warmers and hand warmers as we could, things like that, since we have the privilege of a vehicle, um, started doing distribution around the local area in Baton Rouge, um, and in general have uh, just been doing a lot of support for other mutual aid groups. Um, so I'm sure everyone can speak better to their areas, but that's what was happening with me where I was. It's very cold and grateful to be able to help others out with a vehicle. So uh, again, thank you all. And really, let's just be honest, y'all. Like what we saw was a governmental failure of a massive proportions, right? Like uh, from, from, from local counties, uh, state uh, and nationally, 
and my read y'all like this is what it looks like right like we're seeing empire in collapse decline we're in the early stages of actually systems collapse that's literally how i see it so it's a failure of the empire it's also late stage capitalism like this is going to happen more and more Think about Katrina. then we saw sandy then we saw harvey then we saw the california wildfires right i don't need to tell this group like the the big big picture but i am going to ask why did the entire texas grid collapse bill i kind of look to you to lead us through this but so i'll start with you bill and i'm gonna ask any of the panelists after uh, you hear from bill if you've got something to add to that question or help us unpack that but why the hell did this happen wow uh that's a tough one uh, well, let, let's talk about what we know. First of all, when we say the Texas grid, <clears throat> remember Texas is kind of unique. The United States is broken up into nine grids, basically, uh, independent systems. The other eight are aggregated into two giant, what's called the Western Interconnect and Eastern Interconnect. And so they have connections with each other. ERCOT in Texas is basically cut off. It has almost no connections with other grids, and so it is an island unto itself. It covers about 80% of Texas and includes about 90% of the population. It's, not, it's not, not all of Texas, but it is most of it. So ERCOT oversees the grid. It doesn't own any of the assets. It doesn't own any of the generation or transmission or the utilities, but it oversees it. It was simply, well, I'm not, it wasn't caught by surprise. It was just utterly overwhelmed by events. This storm was extremely powerful and ERCOT had plans on the books. It had models about how cold they think it would be and how much power generation would be used. Those plans, A, they didn't predict the scale of the cold weather but more to the point, they didn't predict how many generation units would go out. Generation units started disappearing very fast. The Texas grid is heavily dependent on gas. It's more than 50% gas, has a lot of wind power, has a little bit of nuclear power, some coal power, small bit of solar and other, but heavily dependent on gas. All of these resources suffered. Basically, none of them had been weatherized. We had a big storm about 2011. We had the same problem. It was a much smaller storm and a much shorter storm, but the cold weather knocked generation units out in 2011 and there were rolling blackouts then too. The uh, federal government FERC wrote a report detailing this in 300 pages and explaining that everything should be weatherized to prevent this. It was just a recommendation, it was not an order Texas is based, the Texas grid is based on a market system. ERCOT, and the, which answers to the Public Utility Commission, has a fairly light regulatory hand. It doesn't force any of the generators to do this, to weatherize their systems, and they were all utterly unprepared. Uh, every type of power system, uh, gas, wind, coal, nuclear, they all suffered. At least 40% of the grid went down. And so at a time when power use was spiking because everyone is trying to stay warm, 
all these generation resources just disappeared. Further, the gas system was a disaster. Gas, when it's pulled out of the ground, has water in it that needs to be separated before it can be sent into pipelines. Those systems started freezing. That cut off the gas supply to the power plants. The power plants went out. You had another reverse effect where then the gas fields could no longer get power and they started going offline, increasing the problem. People were losing gas and power in their homes. Their homes started freezing up. Pipes burst. That started draining the water system. At the same time, water treatment plants were losing power. And so people were hit by this synergistic effect of losing power, water, and gas very, very fast as one played into the other. Thank you. And uh, Bill, I know I, I, I asked a big question of you. Thank you so much for focusing it down for us. Uh, any of our other panelists want to share thoughts? And I did see, uh, Rain, actually, you had a good question. Uh, so as a panelist, let's just have sort of a conversation amongst our panelists. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. So my question is wondering um, how old were the models they were, that they were using? Because I was curious as to um, what predictions they were making for the temperature and if it was accounting for climate chaos or not. Like, are we, how old are these models? ERCOT updates their models regularly. Very mm -hmm. often, I don't have a good sense as to what to extremes what they in terms of anticipating climate change. I don't, mm -hmm. I, they update their models, but it's the nature of the industry. It, it's backwards. Mm -hmm. You estimate future events mm -hmm. based on your worst case past events. Right, exactly. We have the same issue right now with flooding issues right along the coast because everything, all flood insurance, everything that people assume um, is safe for them in these areas are based off really old models. And so when something bad happens, not only um, do people not anticipate it, but they'll waive a lot of the regulations in the aftermath in order to allow people to rebuild um, they'll make the, even though the regulations in the near future are going to say, for example, require you to raise your house um, in order to ensure that you're good for the next major storm surge or sea level rise, um, they'll just waive it. Uh, and so, because it's an emergency situation, which I think is quite crazy also. Th thanks for that a, a profoundly important uh, addition into the conversation and to remind us that this was not, this is not just, oh, winter storms are coming. Let's remember, according to the model, y'all, it's pretty clear this is going to start happening more and more in Texas because of climate change. And what we're talking about is higher sweltering heat, more 100 day plus uh, summer days, and because climate change is disrupting the Gulf Stream, more and uh, more bitter winters and longer winter storms. An incredibly important point. Zach also. Uh, uh, makes me it makes me think Zach about Corpus Christi and how I know so much rebuilding happened that absolutely should not have been rebuilt after Harvey. Uh, so I, I want to uh, wonder if I could entice you to to share a little bit from the from the Corpus uh, perspective. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, one thing that stuck out to me the most about this was that um, a lot of the power shutoffs were. Um, they, they were they were decided it was forced upon us so AEP in Corpus Christi was the one that sort of um, governs uh, energy allotment for our city and they put out a release saying you know it's not that our infrastructure is going down it's not like our power lines are going down like it did during Harvey it's we've been told to not give you power 
Um, and the thing that's so illuminating about that to me is that we have, you know, some people experience black blackouts and some people not. And so like those pictures that you saw of Austin and Houston where the downtown is brilliantly lit up, whereas the neighborhood just outside of it is entirely dark. Um, in Corpus Christi, the industries didn't lose any power. The industry was kept online for the power. It was the people at home that had their power shut off. And then because, you know, we're not weatherized for long-term freezing, people in uh, uh, unregulated housing um, that are renting, their houses are just like shanties put up. And so all of the pipes burst. And so the loss of power shut down all of our water grid as well. Um, the city actually had water mains burst because of it. And because they didn't have power, weren't able to isolate where the main bursts were to get the water back online. And so then we had a water boil for four days um, because there was the potential for contamination and the city couldn't even fix it because they weren't getting the power they needed to run the diagnostic tools. Meanwhile, industry, the fossil fuel, um, refineries that are lining um, Nueces River are still running online, just like even though they're the ones that, you know, have been driving climate change for the last 50 years, knowingly. Um, so it's just, in, it's, it's frustrating because we're like, the people are the ones paying the price for all of these changes. And yet, you know, those in power, those with capital, those that run this are largely unaffected because of their influence. Thank you so much for bringing that point in and sort of like if there was any question about it, the role that capitalism and the dictates of capital play uh, in this, Zach has just made crystal clear. We've got a couple of questions coming in. I want to turn to you, Mark, and, and at, because I know you to be an artist and culture worker. You know, Bill laid down like something pretty complex and boiled it down, but I'm going to actually ask you, do, do, does the artist and culture worker have a special role to play in, explain, in explaining these kinds of things to people? And if so, uh, have you thought about like how to do that? No, I've considered, I actually wrote some haikus about it. I wish I, I, I would have thought to um, print those out and uh, read them to you. But um, how to convey that to the people? I don't know if that's really the role of the artist. I mean, art can be made to do that. But I think at this point, how do we protect ourselves against like corruption at high levels like we just experienced? Like, should we form a network of um, whenever something goes down, the people kind of automatically know what's going to happen as far as where to get supplies, you know, where to get water, you know, stuff like that. That's the type of information I would like to convey. I don't know what to do about at this time because this happened just last week. So I haven't had really my enough time to what art can be made out of that, but definitely communication needs to be made. What kind of pressure can we put on, like who to put pressure on, like so this never happens again? Because that seems to be an ongoing pattern just in Houston. I don't know about the rest of Texas, but the philosophy about waiting till the catastrophe happens to possibly maybe kind of sort of deal with it or just roll it over to the next person in charge. That's been the problem in Houston. But I don't know about Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, those areas, how that how they're coping with that sort of philosophy. Because I can bring up other like like um, you know, Harvey, like the flooding issues that we have that have never been rectified. We just continue to build more stuff and put concrete on the ground. You know, the pandemic, we were slow to operate, you know, to 
through the through the whole lockdown thing. You know, and now it is. It's just like an ongoing thing. That's what I would probably talk about. When is when is this gonna change? You know, there's other things I could, you know, bring up about that type of uh, mentality and people in power. But um, why hog the mic? Well, you got the mic if you if you want to keep going. Uh... So we also have, I mean, I don't want to steer from what we're talking about, you know, which is the freeze last week. But, you know, we also have the, the big Highway 45 expansion, which is going to destabilize a black neighborhood, um, Independence Heights, historic black neighborhood in Houston without any care. There's not a lot of press about it. A lot of people, those people are going to use, lose their homes due to um, eminent domain. Um, we don't need any more freeways. You know, we're like freeway central at this point. It's like so many freeways and toll roads now. It's like at the cost of homes, you know, at the cost of quality of life in Houston. So bringing that back to what we're talking about, it's really like a, a very strong, flawed, capitalistic structure that needs to be addressed. It's like a, kind of like a statewide sort of level of arrogance that needs to be addressed. You know, it's bigger than just last week. This is like an ongoing problem that seems to be like this big concrete and money eating monster. You know, it doesn't really help the regular people, but it helps a few very, very rich and powerful people. Thank you, Mark. And also I want to thank Ben Mansky for demonstrating what in my organizing culture at Cooperation Humboldt, uh, we say children are always welcome at every Cooperation Humboldt event or meeting because we believe in building intergenerational space. So thank you, uh, uh, Ben, and your assistant uh, or uh, uh, maybe you're assisting uh, uh, your colleague there. I'm not sure which is happening. So thank you so much for that. Uh, I do. Uh, uh, want to give Alice a chance to sort of weigh in on this, uh, if you've got any thoughts on the big picture question. Yeah, I want to touch on um, a really good point that Zach brought up earlier, which is pointing to the fact that none of this was natural, right? Like in disaster recovery, I think something that's very apparent is that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. This was a climate disaster, but all but the blackouts, um, the deaths, the intense, um, both physical and emotional trauma that resulted from this crisis, that's all a result of choices um, that humans, governments, and corporations have made. And the example that Zach gave of, um, you know, them controlling uh, who to, the intentional blackouts, right, like controlling who to cut power from, um, I think that's just a that's only the most visible example of the deliberate choices that are happening. Um, to tie this back to Hurricane Harvey, um, you know, a lot of people I think tried to frame the hurricane and the flooding that resulted as some sort of equalizer. And there's this language of disasters as being equalizing that's thrown around a lot, but no, no part of it was equalizing, right? Like the, the weight of these disasters, they fall on the same communities, the same neighborhoods, the same um, populations over and over again. Um, the entirety of uh, Houston's physical landscape, right? Our bayous, um, the dams, those are all very intentionally constructed to protect the high income wealthy uh, downtown areas at the expanse of many of these other um, many of 
many other less well-off parts of Houston that are again and again um, thrown under the bus. So yeah, I think um, also tying onto something that all of the other panelists have said so far is that um, disaster is, is absolutely a state of normal. Um, it's, it's a normal state for these communities. Um, it's not just that disasters are stacking on top of each other over and over again, um, but that, you know, instead of being a deviation from normal, uh, what disasters do is just make visible um, all of these uh, violences and um, harms and injustices that are always happening um, in our in our uh, society that's that's fueled by um, these forces of capitalism um, um, it's, it's just that there are periods of time when it's less visible um, and there's less national attention on it but it's always happening uh, and it's very place-based thank you for that uh, Alice let's let's kick it to Christian uh, in Dallas Hi, I wanted to add on to what Alice was saying. Um, working class people, poor people, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, people of color, they face disasters every single day in their life. And when something like this happens, they're the first to get hit and they're the hardest to get hit, which is why like they usually lose their life or something happens. They're a paycheck away or something less away from ending up on the streets. And today I did a food distribution earlier this morning with some community organizations. And we were told that we were not gonna receive 3000 boxes of food because they didn't have milk in there. So we weren't gonna get the rest of the food. And so many people were already lined up. We had bags of stuff that we, that we had already sorted, but it was not enough. And people were coming up to us ready to take that stuff and and I had to tell people like, go back to your cars. And I had to tell people that we can only give one bag per car. Even if you're multiple families, like we can only give one bag per car. And I realized it's only gonna get worse. And we know climate change is here. It's not five or 10 years away from now. Summers are getting hotter. Winters are getting way colder. Within a week, it was 10 degrees outside less and now, Monday was 74, 75, which is insane. Um, and so I think that you have to organize in your own communities in Houston and Austin in Texas, wherever I'm doing it here in Dallas with all these uh, community-based organizations, people who care, people who will show up because they don't ask you to, they don't pay you to, you show up because you know what it's like, right? And so when this, when this winter storm came, I didn't have power, but I didn't freak out because I knew that I had people that I could I could talk to, people that I knew that had resources that if I needed, they would help me. And I think that we know this stuff is coming. So start talking to people, start getting on the ground, start organizing in every group that you can because no one's gonna help you. You have to help yourself. And if you wanna see change, you have to be that change because no one's gonna do it for you. Thank you, Christian. Uh, and of course, we're all in it together, right? So we have to help ourselves help each other, right? I know that was implicit in what you said. I just really want to lift that part up because as a you know, Texan born and bred like that, 
that culture of rugged individualism gets built into it. Uh, and what I got to say is, y'all, we need each other, right? And we all know that because every one of our panelists has literally demonstrated that. Uh, I also want to lift up Brian Gibbons, who in the chat, for those of you who aren't following it, just it's not a question, but a very astute observation that I want to say out loud on the program. Uh, he quoted progressive era mayor Tom Johnson of Cleveland, Ohio, who believed that privately owned utilities were bastions of privilege that would destroy democracy if not controlled. He said, quote, I believe in municipal ownership of waterworks, of parks, of schools. I believe in the municipal ownership of these monopolies because if you do not own them, they in turn will own you. They will rule your politics, corrupt your institutions, and finally destroy your liberties, end quote. And what I really appreciate that, folks, is it's including your liberties. And again, wearing my hat as a fellow and board member of the Liberty Tree Foundation for the Democratic Revolution, like we understand that liberty and personal liberty has got to actually be part of our struggle for co collective liberation and collective ownership. So thank you, Brian, uh, for that point. And I do uh, wanna actually, because many of us have literally brought us into this, but what is to be done? And it's, uh, you know, every one of our panelists either began to answer that or even started to answer it. But I'm just gonna literally ask our panelists uh, to go around in your estimation, you know, with a hat tip uh, to Lennon, uh, Vlad, not John, what is to be done? I saw you grin, uh, Alice, so therefore you have to go first. Ah, uh, damn, my facial expressions are always getting me in trouble. Um, I mean, it's a it's a huge question. Um, I guess I, I, I'm just gonna touch on some, I guess like contradictions that I've been thinking about in the solutions that are proposed. So, I mean, bottom line, like the energy system needs to be regulated. And Bill, I, I'm not a policy expert, so you can fact check me on some of these things. Um, but there's a lot of people that are specifically, I think framing this crisis and the blackouts as just a problem for Texas, right? Like, oh, this is an example, like they're pointing fingers at Republican leadership um, and at ERCOT. And that's true. But even like if you're in if you're in New York, right, and your power system is regulated, you're a part of this bigger grid network, like that doesn't mean that you're not a part of this broader global system of neoliberal neoliberalization and privatization, right? The thing about being in Texas and in Houston specifically, the power um, and energy resources that flow through this city and this state uh, go to the entire rest of the country and the, the rest of the world. Um, and there are these very powerful global forces that are promoting deregula deregulation um, and neoliberalization, privatization of um, of energy systems and grid systems. Um, like a, an example of this is after Hurricane Maria in, in uh, hit Puerto Rico in 2017. Um, and I mean, you know, there was like Tesla moving in. It was like the wild west almost. Like Tesla was basically using this, um, uh, 
this land as just an experimentation. Um, and there are people who I think basically this disaster um, led to kind of the opposite of what we're experiencing in Texas, uh, but the disaster led to the privatization. So I guess just um, remembering that the a lot of the root causes that led to this huge crisis in Texas, it's not isolated to this state um, and that they do require an international perspective um, and a global perspective. Thank you, Alice, for picking up that. I know I know. I asked a hard and broad and yet deep question, and thank you for picking that up. Uh, other panelists? Sure. Um, actually, I wanted to touch on um, what Alice said, and I also want to shout out West Street Recovery because I love you guys so hard. Um, so hard. And I just also want to shout out that if y'all want to donate to West Street Recovery directly right now, you totally should. Um, we are always down to support them, but you guys should totally do because they are doing great work with like plumbing and housing right now. And that's really high end stuff that's really difficult to do. That's kind of the stuff I focus on. And usually it's like the rebuilding and construction. It's usually way more expensive and hand warmers are great, but a house that keeps you warm is better. <laughs> so please donate to them while they're doing this great work. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I wanted to touch on the Puerto Rico part and also kind of like the what needs to be done. So I went to Puerto Rico as part of the installation for some of the solar down there and like kind of having these discussions with folks on the ground, somebody brought up a question about, my, about microgrids. And I'd be curious to know like what the statistics were for that. I think somebody's like doing a lot of fact checking. So please feel free to share um, what the comparative data was. But um, one of the issues with Puerto Rico was that they like many other countries that have fallen prey to the World Bank and IMF, think you globalization and all of the different trade agreements that we've had since the 90s. Um, because of that, we've developed, and you can look into, if I'm sure people are familiar with it, but if not, you can look into the different clauses that have basically taken away the liberty of democratized or even otherwise countries to be able to create policies and regulations for their own people in their own countries. And corporations are able to then uh, sue them for not having made the profit that they were anticipated to have made when they when they had these contracts. Additionally, when they get too into debt, then they'll come up with these loans. And if they can't come up with these loans, it's an excuse to privatize all of the public resources. And that happens with energy and that happens with water. And in Puerto Rico, the debt, which is obviously not their fault and has to do with all of the different um, regulations that we've had against them for trade in the last few years and the different tax systems led to the 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 cause that they needed to ju to justify the privatization. Um, and I think building a really good understanding of the difference between a privatized and a public or municipal system for things like water, which is gonna be the next one immediately, the next one, and energy are so critical. Having that understanding so that you don't fall prey as a community or, um, or even just aren't being told about it, don't notice the signs of what's happening around that, that start to show that privatization happening, um, then it ends up with people kind of being hoodwinked, if you will, at the end and not understanding what happened until the very end. And I'm wondering right now, if because of the size of the country as is, which I think is why mutual aid groups are so important, we've lost a greater understanding of what's happening to everyone. And I think that's why network to mutual aid is so important because we have those conversations and start to see where those commonalities are. And we start to put together the pieces of how jacked it is that nobody's actually coming to support, yet we're giving everybody all this money to come support, i.e. taxes. And so 
if we're just there to help each other and the systems are not there to support us and that has failed over and over again, but they keep finding excuses to put us further into oppression and debt so that we are then justified into privatization, which is gonna be the only thing that saves us, capitalism, et cetera. This is all the justification. And if we do not learn the skills to build our own society the way that we want to see it and build those networks within our community and then within the nodes that are beyond us, like we did during um, a lot of the different hurricanes recently, especially with, with like Charles, we had a really nice network going on between Louisiana of just different nodes that were able to do and pass things along. And so I think what needs to be done in short is a lot of education around some of the globalization trade agreements and things like that, that are kind of the players behind the scenes navigating these great deals um, that people find out about at, you know, all of a sudden when a bad storm happens or or a blackout happens, um, like what happened a few years ago on the West Coast as well. Um, I think that education is critical. And I think the ability to understand what is in your own com community as a resource, like who has the skills, who has a space, where the safe space is, who has a tree that grows oranges, like literally everything that you can figure out because there's lots of people with fruit trees that have too much fruit and it's a great source, like literally every source in your community find it, know about it, network it, map it, share it, continue to do that until you build those relationships. Get out on the street, don't just be on Facebook, get out in the street and meet the people and work with the people. Like, I mean, six feet away for now, but you feel me. So what needs to be done is community relationships and then also trust. I say that because I think someone said in the same sentence about how like we have to be there for each other, but then also we're totally alone, which is totally true. And that's how we feel, but also Kind of a contradiction in a way and i think that that trust right like we don't we we trust our own community and then we're suspicious and i say we and i know i'm kind of saying a general statement so i'll just say like me but in my experience right um and so how do we build that trust how do we break down those barriers and i think getting in the street doing mutual aid especially after a disaster when there's a big vacuum of power if you can find those relationships then it's so critical because you can build those relationships and a sense of solidarity and, and power together to push back against those systems that come in and are like, oh no, we're the only way to save you. And you have to give up this and this in order for us to save you. So build the power in order to be able to resist, build the knowledge and build the capacity to be able to resist and build. That is all. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Rain, for that. Uh, Questions are coming in, and that's great. I'm going to give our panelists uh, that that haven't shared on this notion the, the the space before we go directly to those questions. But we will go to questions, and I'll try to go a little more rapid fire. But what I will encourage our panelists is to think about uh, what can we do in our terms of our individual networks, but how do we translate that into political power? Maybe it can include electoral political power. It doesn't have to be directly electoral power, but how do we build collective power to change the policy? So I want to uh, uh, invite Mark, Christian, uh, Bill, uh, Zach to, to touch on that in the what is to be done. Definitely uh, <clears throat> repeat that something needs to be done um, using our platforms to express our voices, to encourage people to galvanize because many people are going to have ideas that I'm not going to have. I definitely agree with the speaker that just spoke about like having our own networks among ourselves on the street level, um, as far as even just something as like self-preservation. Um, you can get some local politicians involved that have a voice. Like we have local politicians that actually do care 
that get involved in at the street level uh, whenever there's you know donations whenever there's something like you know whenever there needs to be like a, a PR presence they do lend that do lend that ear well that energy to what's happening on the street level so I think like once you have a big enough strong force on the street level you know self-preservation and even in being very vocal about we're kind of fed up that can spill over to you know galvanize other people to get involved and it kind of expands like you know the pebble in, in the river as far as like how to combat big corporations that I don't know yet but I definitely believe that in you know there's power in people like there's power in enough people getting behind the fact that this needs to change that it can change that's what I have to say thank you Mark uh, Zach yeah, I definitely want to second everything that everyone has been said. Rain's analysis of the importance of mutual aid group was impactful and brilliant. Um, and in like what Alice was saying, grounding it in sort of an internationalist approach, um, seeing how all of these are overlapping um, catastrophes that we're facing. Um, yeah, with our mutual aid group, we've noticed over this last year, um, like there it, it can only do so much i mean we're, we're really just band-aids um and so using like like what rain was saying using the work to make those connections with the community to then build sort of lateral power to then approach sort of solutions on every level has been sort of our recent approach being like we're building these relationships with these people we're building trust within our communities um and then we can use that trust that sort of contact that we're making with the people to then have conversations about you know like what we're doing now what is to be done so that we can then introduce policies on the city and state level to you know to prevent these catastrophes from being so severe. I think um, something that Christian said in his intro that said, uh, where he uh, said that like the work that these mutual aid groups are doing is beautiful, but it's like bittersweet because it's paired with the fact that the people that actually have the power to make change and to, to, to bring relief are doing nothing. And so we're using our mutual aid group to build sort of that fury against sort of these so-called elected officials to help politicize people, to help get people involved in a democratic process so that we can then build true like workers and people's power to restructure the way our governments work. Um, so here in Corpus, we're using that to like put pressure on the government to build low barrier shelters for our houseless neighbors that were disproportionately affected by the storm. Um, we're using it to put pressure on the city to amend the charter to not build um, a saltwater desalination plant um, so that they can use all that water for industry to make more fossil fuel. Um, using our connections to get people on board for all of these sort of um, broad policy decisions um, is, is the way that we're going forward because yeah, uh, it's just, it's, there's only so much that we can do um, to take care of each other when there's all these people that have the capacity to end all of this suffering who choose not to. And so using the networks to um, fully galvanize everybody, um, I, think, I think that's what needs to be done. And that's what we're trying to do here in Corpus.
So folks, I'm doing my best to try to make sure that we share the mic with these brilliant panelists and bring you in. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna kick it to Christian, then to Bill for the what is to be done. Uh, then I'm going to invite Joe to harvest say three questions uh, at once uh, that he's been following from Facebook and also the chat. So three at once and to the panelists, I'll ask you to be listening to those and think about which one uh, of those you might wanna take on. So let's go Christian, Bill, then Joe. So um, yes, yes to everything that everyone has said, um, almost like creating a world within a world, people that you trust, people that you know. And then I'll speak a little bit about what's happening here in Dallas. Right now, Sunrise Dallas is working in a, with a coalition of other groups such as Texas Organizing Project, Working Families Party, um, Mi Familia Vota, union groups like Workers' Defense. We're creating a coalition because this May is the Dallas City Council elections. And while you can also create your own world within a world, it's also good to like change the rules from within as well. Um, so we're all working together to get behind districts and candidates that we, or actually even putting our own candidates um, I myself was considering running for my district here in Oak Cliff within Dallas, but I'm working with um, a past person and he's going to run and we're helping his campaign. Um, there's also some other co community leaders for community organizations. They're running as well because it's really hard to have hope in people who don't live this, who don't show up um, or who only show up for a picture and a photo op which is very disheartening. So we're putting ourselves in power uh, and we're working together and doing this with groups, who, progressive groups, which is, can be, progressive is a weird word, but progressive groups um, who care and who wanna change and who will show up. And so I would recommend start doing that in your own cities. Um, once we have councils that we can trust, mayors that we can trust, we work together as a state and change this whole state. Right on. Let's go, Bill, uh, then Joe. Thanks, David. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree with a lot of what everyone has said. There's a lot of different levels that people can act on. I mean, there are technical fixes to everything that went wrong in ERCOT, but this has shown that the market design doesn't work, assuming that companies will regulate themselves and that high prices will incentivize them to do everything right has utterly failed. This has been a 20 year market design in Texas and it's been a disaster. There's gonna be a lot of pressure in Texas to put all the blame on ERCOT, which is a single entity, a corporation in fact, that misses the focus. This is political organizing is the only thing that can get meaningful change. And uh, I think now is absolutely a moment for it. I think there's been a substantial loss in any faith in the current system by a lot of people. I mean, people who are hard to convince that their issues were freezing in their house for a week and they get it now. And there is a real chance to reach out to a very broad number of people and shift the political balance very fast. Thank you to all of the panelists for taking on that incredibly important and challenging question. And I'll just like, so here's what I figured out is we're all in it together. We're gonna have to do the work where we live, work, 
play and pray. Those folks who are our neighbors, we need to actually do that work. And we've got to start connecting nodes in a rhizomic fashion. We're actually creating value-laden supply chains to actually get our needs met. And I'm just going to like zero in on Christian. Like ultimately y'all, Texas got to take over Texas. All like we've got to actually become the government and actually act like democracy is a thing, even though it's not. Joe, do we have, can you give us three good questions or, or harvest it from three David, people? I'd be happy to. And as always on Shelter and Solidarity, by the time we get 45 minutes to an hour in, we call on our live Zoom audience, our Facebook participants to, to join the, the conversation. And so we're gonna bring in three questions right now. One I've been asked to relay from uh, comrade Ben Mansky, a regular on, on the show. Uh, ben asks, what is organized labor doing in Texas right now that we know of in relationship to this crisis? So that's question number one, uh, question cluster number one. Second question, building on that from yours truly, uh, I'd like to ask about where the state, uh, meaning both the Texas state government, but also the federal government fits in here. Um, as it's been very clear from the presentation so far that folks don't put a lot of faith in the much of the existing leadership Nonetheless, I'd be like to push on the question of what demands are being raised right now at either the state or the federal level or the municipal level for that matter that you think should be supported or new demands that are not really mass demands yet that that could be should be pushed. Um, maybe we could highlight spotlight some of those calls that are out there, even if it's the exception to the rule. I understand Biden's supposed to be making a trip down to Texas um, next by the end of the week. I'm curious what what kind of greeting you think um, he should have. Uh, and the third question, I'd like to, like to go to our newest co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity, Re Rachel Patton, to, to relay it herself. Uh, Rachel, can you unmute and um, let's hear you. Hey everyone, um, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering, so these crises sort of provide a really good opportunity to organize people um, as they see how these like climate crises are affecting them. And I'm wondering, how we can organize people before um, it becomes so immediate and so grave and to organize to prevent these kinds of disasters before they become disasters um, and how we can sort of reach people who maybe don't realize that these things are going to affect all of us very soon. Thanks, Rachel. Back to you, David, and, and to the panel. Well, fantastic. And thank you, Joe, for that help. So we've got organized labor. We've got a challenge of thinking about the state, uh, both uh, the state of Texas and the state broadly. Uh, and then Rachel's question around organizing people uh, in preparation of this. So I'm going to just kick it to the panel. And y'all don't make me call on you this time. So panelists, like, pick, pick one of those uh, and let's hear your thoughts. Christian, I'm gonna ask you to dig in a little deeper on organized labor because I literally heard you reference that a little bit. I'm gonna ask you to tease that one out. And, and the rest of the panelists, I will call on you if you make me. So Christian, you got it. So David, I actually can't speak too much about organized labor. I just know that the workers union, is, worker defense is working with us on a coalition. Uh, we're building our own platform policy uh, we'll have that coming out soon. It's called DFW for All. And so each group specializes in their own section and they write policy based on what they believe is most fair. We all have a chance to go through it and see and make edits. 
Um, but I actually want to talk to about Rachel's question, um, organizing people. I actually first started organizing and, and met everyone that I know because of the Black Lives Matter protests last year in 2020. Um, at first, I thought like we marched for hours and hours during those summers, and it was really hot and it and it was terrible. But we all cared and we all showed up every single time. And those are the people that kept on showing up. And those are the people that lead community organizations. And those are the people that helped this past week. Um, so anytime that there's something going on, there's a mass of people, there's people that show up, it's because they care. And they're there for, they may show up for something, but they're actually there for a lot more. Um, so at, I, I would hate to say it, but at disaster, there's always opportunity. And take those opportunities and organize with who you can and with what you have and just continue to grow because organizing will never stop. That ought to be a t-shirt right there. Um, other panelists want to weigh in on that crop of three questions? Um, oh. Go, Alice. Okay, sorry, Mark. Um, so You're going to go to Mark next. <laughs> I, this is gonna be a pretty short answer, but just to touch on the organized labor question and maybe someone in other factions of organized labor, if you're on the Zoom, you can weigh in. But before I worked for West Street, I was actually working uh, for the Gulf Coast AFL-CIO, which is honestly, I mean, I think I left that space pretty intentionally. Um, basically, I don't have a very positive outlook on the future of organized labor in Texas, um, particularly in the traditional channels of like the AFL-CIO and its affiliated unions, um, at least in Houston, I know that we ideally, you know, we would actually be pushing for progressive policies, um, things like the Green New Deal, but a lot of our coalition's priorities are determined by honestly like white wealthy unions like the building trades. Um, and so a very big question that was always in my mind when I worked there is like, how can, you know, how can we get the labor movement to actually be a movement again? Because it feels, it felt very stagnant when I was there. Um, and how can we sort of build a new coalition of uh, uh, that genuinely represents the interests of working class people and poor people um, and that even goes beyond uh, the traditional organizing tool of trade unions, which um, in my opinion, feels like they're kind of operating in our political system currently as um, an interest party uh, instead of truly a progressive coalition. But I welcome di diverging opinions from that. <laughs> Mark. I cannot speak on uh, the labor unions at all. And actually, I was going to chime in to see if you could reiterate the three topics you wanted us to speak on. Well, in, in essence, Mark, we had a question on organized labor. We had a broad question on the role of the state, both the state of Texas, but also conceptually the state as uh, understood in political theory. And then a question specifically on organizing people in advance of the disasters uh, just as a, as a concept. That's how the third one, I would definitely, I, would, I could get behind as far as like organizing people, you know, in advance, like preparedness, 
because we already know it's going to be another another um, disaster. Like we we get them like every couple of years. It's always something else. So why not make it like a commonplace thing for the average person to know what to do if this situation occurs, what to do if that situation occurs. I think that's the type of information that people need to really start embracing. Like me, I didn't really have a whole really lot of problems. Um, last is naturally prepared for a lot of stuff. Like I always have like a, a gang of reverse osmosis water. I'm probably gonna get some rain barrels pretty soon, invest in that. Um, I always have like, you know, just like the average person should know how to, like, let's say all the grocery stores stop, you know, how do you grow food? You know, that should be like commonplace information. Um, Cause I'm always, I don't believe in the top down anymore. Like, I just think they're gonna do what they're gonna do. So I'm always like, what can we do on the ground for ourselves? So, you know, we can protect ourselves in any type of situation. Even, even like on our own block, you know, like if everybody on the block is new, like know who has the generators, who's gonna, um, you know, who has room to take a neighbor in if their electricity goes off. Cause I was feeling bad that I wasn't prepared like that. Like now afterwards I was like, okay, how many people can I take in the next catastrophe happens? You know, like where can they stay? What part of my house can they be in? Stuff like that. And that's what I could do personally. So I think if more people have that type of philosophy, if they do have room, instead of like having a lot of, you know, miscellaneous stuff or whatever, they could, you know, be able to take people in just in, in their own vicinity, their own friends, you know, that would minimize a lot of um, angst, just preparedness. Thank you, Mark. And thank you all. So uh, I want to, Joe clarified, uh, his question around the state was, what demands to make of the state, right? Like, uh, and I think that that's an important one. And, and uh, I'll just sort of, as the moderator, uh, jump in and say, you know, Naomi Klein, I think did us a great service in the shock doctrine when she talked about the, the problem with disaster capitalism and said what was coming. So I wonder out loud, y'all, why don't we just uh, reverse engineer that and do disaster socialism? Uh, why don't we actually say, uh, we're, we are literally prefiguring the, the, the mutual aid that is already happening, the kind of things that Rain talks about, like just tracking the ecosystem of where are fruit trays, what Mark talked about, where are the generators? What if we actually said and ran at the local level in electoral politics, unabashedly saying, I'm running for office because I'm, gonna, I'm a community prepper. I'm a prepper, but instead of hoarding guns and hoarding food and keeping it for myself and my family and training those guns on other people, my whole agenda is to prepare this community for the disasters that are coming and we're all gonna all take it together. Like it just feels to me like there must be a way to do electoral politics as an unabashed radical uh, revolutionary and do it authentically. And at the very least, just think of electoral politics as yet one more front of struggle. So that's how I think about uh, Joe's question, but I welcome other uh, panelists to, to weigh in. Hey, this is Jane. I just wanted to kind of touch on that third part. Um, Kent just put something in the chat too about neighborhood resiliency hub. So there's been a lot of different movements around uh, urban sustainability, permaculture movement, eco-villages, things like that. And, there's gonna be a lot of different suggestions about how to like organize those resources within urban areas or rural areas. But I think um, 
a lot of what needs to be done as far as being able to navigate and adapt to something that is unpredictable is that you have to diversify. So you can't write just monocrop. You have to have a variety of sources of where you're getting your water. You have to have a variety of sources of where you're getting your energy. You have to have a variety of sources of where the food is located and how it's being produced or else you are not adaptable and you will not survive something that is unpredictable. Um, so I think a lot of that organizing in advance is really about starting to diversify and map. If you don't have it in your community yet, if you can't find it, build it. If it does not exist yet, and you know it needs to be there, build it now, right? And then when people start seeing you do that, they're gonna follow because unfortunately, you know, that's the way that things are. Some people need an initiative or uncomfortable or they need a training and they wanna do it, but they don't have the skills. There's like a lot of reasons people hold themselves back, right, sometimes. And so another thing that I think is really great is things like free schools. I used to do free schools all the time. Um, they're great and anybody with any kind of knowledge can just host one and then everybody gets to learn. You can host a training. If you you know know how to like change the oil in a car, great. Teach like a whole bunch of people how to change the oil in a car, save them like, you know, 20 to 30 bucks the next time. You know, whatever needs to happen that still helps the community in some way, especially for folks, like they just didn't have the access to the knowledge. Um, and on, as far as being able to make sure we organize, I really wanna just bring attention to a lot of those communities that are not considered. Um, thinking about, you know, folks who have mental wellness issues or folks that are houses or immigrant populations or anybody out there like that, it's really important to think about like those needs in advance because those are the people who don't have the privilege to access some of the resources that will be provided. And so it's really, 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 really critical to think about how do we make sure that those individuals are also getting that same level of solidarity that we're trying to have with everyone else. Um, and part of that I think is also like I keep saying and everyone else has to is get out in the community. You gotta get on the street. You gotta know who the people are. You gotta talk to them and know what their needs are or else you're doing the same white savior sort of thing when you go out into the street and you just bring a bunch of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like you gotta know your community. Um, so getting out in the street, knowing the community, knowing building that network. Um, I just think that that's, that builds the trust that you need to feel like you're empowered as a group enough to stand against something. And that standing against something is literally- Stepping up for Texas. Say that again. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's that power together that lets us be able to feel like we can stand up, I think. And I think that's gonna be critical because fear is what they use. Fear is what they use to get us and knowledge is power, right? So build the knowledge, build the awareness of where the stuff is and then people aren't gonna be as fearful. They feel a little bit more prepared even if they just know how to change a tire, a little bit more prepared. And so as we start to build that, we feel empowered and I think that just spreads. And I don't know how to make people care to answer one of the other things I think Rachel brought up is like, how do you make people care? Oh my God, I think if any of us had the answer to that, that'd be great, um, but I think what I see when I'm on the ground after a disaster situation is that people lose a lot of the animosity or prejudices or, or stuff, whatever the drama is that we have between ourselves because people see the need and it's just like this pull. And so, but that's immediate, right? You got like a week or two before everybody starts, you know, having issues with why it's not getting back to normal yet and starting to freak out. But if you can hit that sweet spot um, and you can get people to start building together, 
Um, I think we have that capacity. I think we have the ability to stand up together. And I think we have the ability to make a new world, but we're gonna have to diversify. We're gonna have to start taking more ownership and autonomy and not being so reliant on these centralized and you know monoculture type systems. These global trade systems where we have no idea what the bottom line is. We have no idea what the minimum number of resources are that we still have available to ourselves as a planet. Like tell me how much water's in your aquifer right now especially Texas, tell me how much water is in your aquifer right now, okay? Because if you don't know how much water you have left, I should probably be careful about how much you're using, right? But that's the world that we live in. We are completely removed from those resources. So make it smaller, less centralized so that you're aware and you can self-govern. You can communally, you can collectively self-govern your own resources. I'm, I'm gonna be quiet and step back now, but I just wanted to touch on that, Rachel, because I was like, when you said, how do we make people care? I was like, you know, so I feel you. So I'm going to kick it to Joe, who has a follow-up and also has uh, captured another question or two. Joe? Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for this very, you know, I think rich discussion. Uh, as the host of the regular Shelter and Solidarity, I cannot resist this moment to mention that we have another show tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard on a very relevant topic the challenges and the value of left and progressive media in this crisis moment, not only the crisis of COVID, but the crisis of capitalism. Obviously, it goes without saying that amplifying the stories, the struggles, the lessons that are being learned to people who haven't heard them yet is a crucial part of the struggle. So that's same Zoom place, slightly different Zoom time, 7 p.m., one hour later, um, and we'd love to have some of you back. I know we all have obligations, but this has been a great conversation and this is not signaling the end of it, but I wanted to make sure before you go, you know, we'll be back here um, tomorrow and twice a month for the foreseeable on Thursday nights, usually plus bonus episodes like this one. Okay, so we have a question, which I think builds on some that's been said from Pine. Pine asked me to read this question. The question is in the chat box. You may have to scroll a bit for it, but it goes like this. How do we think mutual aid groups that become active in response to this disaster should continue to develop and grow once it's over? Uh, and to that, I would just like to tack on another, uh, maybe a little more focused question or a more specific question about the bills. I mean, the are there opportunities for organizing right now about these egregious bills that people are coming? I mean, the heat may be back on, there may be uh, you know, some power back on for lots of folks. But we're talking about people with these $16,000, you know, electricity bills, the, the quote, lucky ones that still had electricity in some cases. I wondered, you know, what you're, I mean, I'd actually be interested in, in the analysis of that from Bill and others, um, but, but also the, op, the political organizing opportunity. So again, from Pine, a broader question about how to keep people active or how should the kind of organizing or how could and should the organizing coming out of this immediate disaster become something else more long-term? And then a question about, um, you know, the specific issues of opportunities around the, the question of who's gonna pay. Thanks. Well, Bill, you were specifically uh, identified as a panelist. So uh, would you like to take a cut at that? Sure, I got called out. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. I think <clears throat> the question of who is gonna pay is huge. And uh, there's a lot to organize on. The bills are important and they're a story everyone gets immediately and they get the unfairness of it. Realize that most people will not see these massively spiked bills. Most people are on 
uh, you know, a, on a set rate. And the way it'll impact them is in several ways. One is that, you know, in the next few months, a utility will add a rate, to you know, a cost recovery fee and add two cents a kilowatt hour for the next two years to pay it. So they'll pay for it. They just won't see it in the same way. They'll also see their taxes go up probably in cities that have their own utility systems. They are all hurting. I know several of them just got hammered trying to pay the cost when the, the price of uh, electricity shot up 300 times on the spot market and the gas price did the same thing. And so these cities are gonna raise taxes for that likely. And, they'll, and the quality of the, the system may well get worse as they divert funds away from system repairs just to try to pay off these massive bills. So I think, I think those bills are a great organizing tool and point out the unfairness of it. I think an insane number of people though, tens of millions lost power, water, gas, what have you. And I think that is equally shocking, just getting to the heart of a, the system, just how unfair it is and how untrustworthy it is. Texas, I mean, I don't know of anyone making demands on the state government, partially because this is so sudden and because nobody has any faith in the state government to do much of anything. But I think I, I think there's always been in Texas a push that as long as everything is low tax, then they can get away with anything and they're not expected to even have competent government services. I think it's very easy to push back on that now and say this is the result of that low tax ideology where they will just utterly fail you and your family. Thank you so much. Y'all, I'm gonna go Zach, then Alice, then Christian. Zach. Um, yeah, I'm really glad that Rain, your question uh, is being asked because that's something that my mutual aid working group um, has been working on over this past year. So we formed in response to the pandemic um, and thankfully we, with having been active for a year when this winter storm hit, we had uh, a great capacity to do with it. And so, yes, it is important to keep mutual aid work, uh, working groups um, operating just continuously and endlessly because the more you operate, uh, the stronger that you become. So when we had first started organizing around the single, like the single pandemic issue, um, that kept us going for a couple months until sort of attention towards our group um, and the continued delays of any government action led to decline in our capacity. But through the couple months that we had been working, we had taken, um, brought in a lot more volunteers um, and, and people in our contacts. And so when we hit, the, hit this point, we were like, well, we have so many people that we can start, like, we, what, are, what, what do we wanna do? What are we able to do? Um, what skills do we have that we can lend to each other? Um, and how can we use that to, um, expand and, and do other things. And so a lot of the things that Rain brought up about sort of um, community gardening and, and resource management and building nodes and stuff like that, like we, we pivoted and we recognized that a lot of the food that we were sending to people was, you know, uh, canned food or not fresh. And so that led us to think about the food infrastructure in our city. And so then we started to develop um, a community garden program. And so we're building community gardens and we're assisting people with who have never gardened before to learn how to grow food in their own backyard. Um, we had people that were teachers and we knew that a lot of 
kids were struggling with at-home learning. Um, and so we were like, well, this isn't gonna cost money, it's just cost labor. So let's start our own tutoring program. There's just so many things like, you just query every, all of your members and participants on what skills they have and to build programs around those skills. Um, and, and the beautiful thing about that is it just becomes this compounding, ever-growing cycle where now you have, you went from one program to multiple programs. You started with 12 people and now there's 24 people and all of them are doing their own projects within their own communities. Um, and the other beautiful thing about that is sharing skills and labor doesn't cost any money. So when our donations dried up, that didn't mean that we had to end our activity. It meant that we were able to still continue, continue continually assisting our neighbors and building community um, without money, with just labor and time and skill and effort and love. Um, and so I think that's one of the best ways that mutual aid groups, I know that everyone else on this call can also add to their own experience with it, but that's just one of the best ways to continue the work of mutual aid and also continue expanding its um, capacity and envelope um, so that, you know, eventually it'll replace the inefficient sort of government top-down mode of assistance and the, replace the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps with your question. Thank you so much. We're going to go to Alice, then uh, Christian. Um, Zach, that was an amazing answer. And this is kind of, I don't know if it's pushing back against that a little bit, but um, I was, I'm friends with one of the people who run the Houston Mutual Aid account. And I just want to plug them because they're incredible. They raised 200 like over $250,000 um and in 4 days they distributed like 200k of that indirect cash aid to people so $100 a family um and that's absolutely incredible but also you know one of those organizers said recently like they've also been doing food and water drives right but it's like we can only play government for so long and i think my interpretation of that is like why is the responsibility of people receiving basic needs like drinking water falling on the shoulders of like a team of three like 20 year old women like i just think like there's something about the situation that's so absurd but like i don't know i guess i've just been thinking about like so the role of mutual aid right is to fill in the gaps and the failures of government and if you're distributing cash aid that's going to reach families so much more quickly than like, you know, the months that it's going to take for a FEMA application to go through. Um, but I'm, I don't know, I guess I kind of, I want to think like, if you take a step back $200,000 and giving $100 to each family, that's 2000 families. Houston is a city of 2.3 million people, right? Like the scale of the disaster and the scale of the aid that's happening right now just doesn't fit. And so trying to think about like, I don't know, it's kind of, it, it's something that I'm stuck on as well. Um, but I think one way that I think it's really important as we move forward, going back to Rain's, uh, previous, um, Rain's previous comment, I think um, focusing on community and thinking about how uh, these forces of globalization, urbanization and capitalism, right, they've 
completely broken apart these traditional modes of social organization and connection um, that happen at a much smaller scale. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to meet the needs of an entire Houston community and make sure that no one's falling through the cracks. Um, mutual aid Houston operates primarily on social media. There are so many, you know, undocumented families, people who um, uh, speak Spanish, don't have reliable internet connection that just aren't on social media. And so there's a lot of the same people are still going to be falling through those cracks. And so I think it really does go back to decentralization um, and actually building a real community with deep, deep connections, right? Like West Street operates primarily in Northeast Houston. And we don't just use our community group chats for disasters. We're like every morning, there's someone who messages good morning. And we wish, we wish each other like, um, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and things like that. So I think like it definitely for me goes back to building those relationships at honestly a much, much smaller scale than the scale that like these big relief and aid programs are operating on right now. Christian? So I uh, will like those ideas were amazing. Uh, we're pretty much doing that as well. What Zach was saying about community gardens. Um, we work Latinx Dallas and Sunrise Dallas works with uh, um, Oak Cliff Veggie Project. They've been doing food distributions for the past eight years and we've been helping them for the past year. They have four locations around Oak Cliff, which is a small part of Dallas. And we've also started growing our own food at each of the location. It's not a lot, but it's just to get started and just to start getting that process going because you got to start somewhere. Um, but eventually we would take it further and start selling that to first for our own people, for our own community, it would be free because um, you put in the time, you put in the effort, it's a communal thing. And then outside of this community, we would sell that produce, local produce to whoever wants to buy it at a higher price. It's locally grown. It's usually a BIPOC community. People will pay that price. That's how you can sustain. Unfortunately, we still will need money, but we won't need money from within. We just need money to continue to fund these things. And then when we have our own, when you're growing your own crops, when you're growing your own mushrooms, by the way, I learned how to grow mushrooms during the pandemic, um, which is your own food. You're, if you can make your own food, you are saving yourself money. And then if you can sell it, you don't have to go work at another place or wherever and provide your own labor or this or that. You're making everything yourself. When you do that, you can then sell that. And then I would even say a lot of our mutual aid groups do primarily run off of Instagram, Twitter, and maybe even Facebook. If there's a way to go viral, people will buy your stuff. People will want to support you, just like they supported the Houston Mutual Aid, $250,000. Continue that. Have your own, I would even hate to say like, have your own merch, anything like that, so that people will buy from you and that you don't have to go anywhere else. Making everything yourself and then selling that. And then within your own communities, your basic necessities are met. You have everything that you need, education, food, housing, it's all there for you. Um, that's just, uh, it's, yeah, if you can go viral, if you can get what you need, people will support you. Um, and that's how you can self-sustain. Self 
Well, folks, this has been a phenomenal conversation and, and 90 minutes has just flown by. So what I'm gonna do is open the space to each of our panelists for some uh, parting or final thoughts uh, based on everything that we've heard. Uh, Joe, just as a heads up, I am gonna kick it to you for uh, the final since I know you are the normal host uh, of this program. So uh, let's open it up to our panelists for final thoughts. Rain. I was just about to ask if there was a speaking order. Um, sure, okay. Thank you guys, everybody. It was really awesome to be here and I love sharing space with folks who are also working on revolutionary acts. So uh, thank you everyone for what you do and keep doing it. Um, we gotta stick strong and together. So uh, everyone's an expert in something whether you believe yourself or not, like figure out what it is that you'd love to share and share it with the community and go meet everyone and um, do educate yourself about where your resources are coming from quickly because there will be a grab for privatization on a lot of our public resources. And you can look into how that's already happening in a lot of countries. There's some pretty good documentaries about it that you can find too, especially about the water and energy crises and privatization. So I'd highly recommend that as some of my parting words and stay safe. We're gonna go Zach, Mark, Bill. Oh. Zach, Bill, Alice, because Mark has left us. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you to all the panelists and everyone in attendance. Um, it has been an amazing discussion and it's really heartening to hear that um, all the different ways that we're all uh, getting through uh, the collapse of uh, capitalist empire um, together. Uh, but yeah, just uh, want to say endlessly, like if you're not part of an organization, if you're not joining anything, if your city doesn't even have anything, like do it. It's 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 amazing. It's brilliant. It's the best way to network um, your community um, and ensure that you know if you're in need or your neighbor is in need, you'll be there to uh, take care of each other as things only get worse. Uh, but thank you all again so much. Bill, Alice, Christian. Well, I want to thank you for letting me be on this panel. This is this is just a great community to see, and uh, and I know a lot of the you know the technical stuff I was talking about with the ERCOT system is complex, and people get bogged down in it. But it's exciting to see everyone here focused very much on the community and ground level. And I saw a lot of groups in Austin here doing that all this past week, and to see all of these organizations out here working on the local level is just amazing. It, it it gives me hope in a way. I'd kind of lost hope for a while, but to see so many, so many little blossomings of energy and excitement and power is just is just truly incredible to be part of. So thank you. Alice. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. And it's been amazing meeting the other panelists talking to people in other cities and other states. Um, I guess I just wanna end by reminding everyone that this isn't anywhere close to being over. Uh, for West Street, you know, this is our third major natural disaster in four years. Um, and this, it, it doesn't feel good that we're, you know, it's almost become routine, this sort of disaster response. Um, 
and during Harvey, this the national coverage for that disaster lasted much longer than the national coverage for this. And I think that just speaks to the depth and the extent of all the overlapping crises that our nation um, is struggling with right now. Um, but I think moving forward, care, continuing to care for each other and finding community. Um, and also it's something that I'm still trying to figure out is trying to figure out the difference between survival programs and um, you know our vision, our collective vision for a better future. Um, for example, you know, we houses that we've rebuilt since Harvey, they've they were damaged again, they were flooded again in Imelda, and a lot of those were flooded again um, from burst pipes in this latest disaster. And it's not that's not what we want is to continue to have to be rebuilding the same houses over and over again. Um, but that's also what people need uh, to survive in this moment. So we're doing that and we're making sure people's needs are met um, at the same time as organizing and building power uh, towards something else big, bigger in the future. Christian. I uh, just want to say thank you all for having me. It's great to to be in a space with with other similar like-minded individuals, knowing that it's, this is not just happening in Dallas, but it's going on all over cities in Texas. Um, we all share the same uh, shared experience of what just happened last week. Uh, I just want to, uh, what I was going to say, just want to say, um, if you want people to care, uh, look up public narrative by Marshall Gantz. He organized with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement and Cesar Chavez. Um, there is a way to get people to care and there's a way to tell your story. And uh, just thank you all for, for having me here. Oh my God, Trisha, thank you so much for bringing uh, Gantz into this conversation. You know, so my, for my final, I will pick up on that point, right? And so my, for my final uh, point is this. People don't understand the world through facts. We understand the world through stories, right? And we have a compelling story. And I'm just gonna say this, like the left, however you define that, we've got the winning fucking story. Like, cause we're based on love and compassion and beauty and kindness. And if we told that meta story in our organizing all the time and then had good strategic planning, around how to make that story reality, we will win. The left too often falls into the telling and fighting over the battle of the story, or the, the story of the battle and the minutia, instead of understanding the meta narrative. The right knows how to do that and they do it better than we do. And we damn well better get better at it because the world needs us, right? We need each other. So thank you to all the panelists. Uh, I also want to say thank you so much to Rachel and Kira behind the scenes who made all of this stuff happen. Uh, thank you to Surin uh, who tapped me. So all y'all know when Surin asked me to do this, I said, man, I don't think I'm the right person to do this. I don't even live in Texas anymore. Uh, but, but he insisted that I do it and I'm so grateful that he did. Uh, and I also want to conclude uh, by thanking Joe, uh, the host normally of this show, for turning over this space uh, to me slash us. And I wanna give Joe uh, the, the final concluding parts. Peace y'all.
Yeah, thanks so much for that, David. And thanks to all of our guests, which have already been thanked. But, you know, uh, so but so I don't want to leave anyone out, uh, but I'll, I'll try anyway. But I think you're all clustered here together on my screen to Zach, Bill, Christian, Alice, Rain, David, uh, and everyone else who contributed uh, today. I know we had another uh, speaker drop off earlier. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth pointing out that in some sense, Shelter and Solidarity, now I think this is our 33rd episode over the last nine or months or so since the pandemic really hit here in, in where, where I am in Boston. And in some sense, it started as a mutual aid project too, you know, a kind of social and psychological kind of sustainer project, right? We Facebook had a, a flutter one day when the when they sent the, the, the human beings home and turned controls over to the computers and everything was crashing on Facebook. And we hit we had the thought, what if they really did, you know, if Zuckerberg really did decide to bring down the hammer, you know, where would we be when when our thousand activist allies are all through Facebook? And, and out of that, that kind of half joking conversation came a very, very serious proposal to establish this space. And we've been going strong you know on our spare time all of us working jobs and uh, so i just need to thank my co-producers of the show some of whom have been named already but i also want to uh, so that's rachel uh rachel patton kira mudliar stren mudliar uh linda lu uh, tim sheard mark soderstrom i also need to thank our co-sponsoring organizations which include hardball press a publisher of working class and progressive children's literature check out Hardball Press, uh, Community Church of Boston, Dean Stevens and the folks at Community Church of Boston, the Liberty Tree Foundation uh, for the Democratic Revolution, our newest co-sponsor, Encuentro Cinco, a hub for organizing and activism in downtown Boston, and last but not least, the journal Socialism and Democracy, a research journal for activists and organizers. Check it out, sdonline.org. Also, this particular program was co-sponsored by the uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, working, uh, working Group on Mutual Aid. Uh, so it's great. Our list of co-sponsors grows, and that's the idea. We're happy to open this space to you. We have a regular weekly show, bi-weekly, I should say, tomorrow, Thursday night. But we are now doing special edition shows, too. If you have ideas for a topic, if you have ideas for a speaker, whether that person is you or someone else, please be in touch with us, shelterandsolidarity.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. Please do. Um, please do, you know, subscribe, share the content, all the archives of this show and of tonight's show will be available uh, hopefully within the next couple days.